welcome to those who are visiting us online today. I am very excited as we are headed into something that is amazing. So in order to get there and to have us all in the right place for it, I'm going to ask you some questions. But as I ask these questions, I just want you to think about it and I want you to do this. Whenever you get asked a question about something about yourself, there's an initial reaction, right? You have an initial moment of yes or no or whatever, right? And then I want you to just let it sit for one more second and do that second layer where you let the Holy Spirit sort of talk to you about, is that true? Is that real? Is your, is your first blush accurate? And like, like in taking tests in school, first blush usually is, but just give it that other moment where you let, you know, you just think about it. So here's, here's the first question. You'll get it here pretty quick. All right, we're in Genesis. Is your walk with God filled with joy? And I'm talking about when you think about the things that you do, um, coming to church, doing devotionals, reading your Bible, praying, um, coming to some sort of a class, being part of a group. When you think about those kinds of things, is your first reaction joy? I get to do these things. I'm happy to do these. This, this brings me joy. I can't wait to go do that. Is that your first reaction or not? Okay. Now let me do another one here. Not just is your walk with God filled with joy, but is your life overall filled with joy? When you think about yourself, do you think, to your, when you think about who I am, do you think I am basically a joyful person? I have a good life. God is wonderful and so on. I'm yeah, sure, I have moments. But no, in general, I'm good. And I'm joyful. Joyful. Okay? Is that you? Now, the reason why I ask these first two questions this way is because I want you to see what God intended for every Christian. What he said was, these things I've spoken to you, all the things he'd been talking about, Okay, this is in John 15, where he's now the last supper with the disciples, and he's talking about everything I've been talking about, including the stuff right here. I've told you, I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you. Now watch this. He's not talking about, do you have joy in the things of the world? He's talking about, do you have the same kind of joy I had? And think about Jesus. Jesus was a pretty joyful person. He was not stressed. Who's going to pay the taxes? Well, I'll go fishing. Who's going to, who's going to, who's going to? I, it's, I got it. Okay? Do you see it? So the point is, what he wanted to do, he wanted my joy, the joy he has, to be in us so that our joy, the way he created us to be the most fulfilled, would be true. That you'd be living in the fullness of the joy that he wanted to give you. Now, I want to say something. In America today, I think if you ask that question and you line up 100 Christians, I think you get maybe eight that can answer that question truthfully with a yes. And if you wanted to select down and go to churches like ours where, you know, there is a layer of really going after God and really trying to live in him and so on, I think we might get all the way up to maybe, what, 15? So think about this. There's something going on here. Okay, and think about another thing. When I'm talking about having joy in your life, here's what I'm not talking about. Being in the park, having a picnic with butterflies all the time. That's what it takes to be joyful. You can't have any stresses and strains. This is exactly what we're not talking about. In fact, Scripture again says it this way. Look, you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we understand. And I want you to understand that's not just saying it's a peace that goes beyond our ability to understand it, but it's also a peace that has to do with you're in the middle of trial, but you're at peace, right? See? Now, that's ununderstandable. You should be freaking out, <laughs> but you're not. You're genuinely at peace, real peace, lasting peace. Doesn't matter if you should die. Peace. We have story after story after story of saint after saint after saint who went to their incredibly gruesome deaths singing with joy. How's that happen? Well, here's the answer. Or not the answer, but here's the truth. This should be the, the case with every single Christian all the time. This is what God is trying to give you. So if we're not living in it, well, we might want to work on that, which we're going to be doing. Now, 
let's change gear a little bit here. Is your life filled with transcendent moments experiencing God's glorious working? Here's what I mean by that. When you're walking through your day, if you're being led by the Spirit, here's what it looks like. The person at work that you talked to last week has a story to tell you about what God did in their life. The person at lunch that you go to lunch with for some business reason has a need in their life and you're able to say something which is appropriate for the workplace but ministers to them life. In such a way that you go, I couldn't have done that. (laughs) God moved. God did something there. Wow. See it? I'm telling you, our lives should be marked with almost I really want to say every single day and multiple times a day, moments of, wow, look what God did. I was doing that, and then God did this, and then this, oh my gosh, way beyond, and definitely God. Do you see it? Now, if that happens, then here's our last question. I want you to answer it honestly. Is your life filled with thanksgiving and praise to God? Look, I did a sabbatical. I got to go skiing a lot. And I, as I said, I think God got tired of how much I was thanking him for it. It's easy to thank God then. I'm not talking about then. I'm talking about in your life with work and issues and, so, and, and all the stuff, health or financial or whatever else is going on. Is your life nonetheless abounding in thanksgiving and praise? Because if you're really following the Lord, he tells us that's what that life looks like. That's what life looks like. Now, I want to get really practical with you because I can say this in the abstract, but I need to get really down to brass tacks here. For two weeks, I want you to think about it. For two weeks now, God has been talking to us about faith, not works, right? Started with Kevin and he, and he did this wonderful sermon on when Abraham in this still squall, small quiet moment is God is saying, how are you? And he says, I'm fine, but I don't have any heirs. And who's going to get what I have? And I'm old. And what's going to happen? And, and God just basically, in a still small quiet moment, takes him out of the tent and says, look up at the stars. It's not your slave who's going to get this. Your descendants are going to be more than those stars. And indeed, that's true in ways that are way beyond just what he did by blood because we are his children because in that moment he said or he believed and God said he counted it as righteousness he counted Abram as being right with him because he believed despite the age despite the issues you see it now that truth is what we did two weeks ago in a sermon that I'm going to refer to about 10 times because it was so good And then last week, we did covenant that follows right after it. And we looked at this thing again about what God's doing in our lives. But a lot of it had to do with faith, not works. Now today, we're going to be 30 years in advance, 30 years away from that moment where Abraham's about to sacrifice Isaac. That's 30 years later. And there's something about faith, not works, that God is going to bring home to us today that is so important. But here's why. Watch this. When I was listening to Kevin's sermon two weeks ago, God spoke to me. And he said, your devos are getting a little kinked. Now, how many, how many people know that devos are absolutely the most important thing to me? I mean, I'm not talking more important than God, but devos is the time that I take with God. And every sermon I've ever preached comes right out of devos. Everyone, holy, I mean holy. The research I do is because God told me to do the research in my Devo. I don't research it and then come up with a good idea. I go and I pray and I ask the Lord what he wants to say, and that's where it comes from. Every single sermon I've ever preached in 30 plus, 30, almost 40 years I've been doing this. But not just that, every decision I've ever made in my personal life, in this church's life, everything that has ever happened has come right out of that time. Every single thing. Everything. So how important do I think devos are? Well, if you've been here for a long time, you've heard me say it so many times, you're sick of it. (laughs) But this is how important they are. But there's always been a little problem in devo that I've actually talked about before, and that's this. 
sometimes I get out of bed and I have lots of energy and I want to spring to it and I put on my shoes and put on my rain gear and I go out. <laughs> but, you know, I just turned 63. That's not that old in today's world, but when I was 20, that seemed like ancient. And right now at 63, I got to tell you, every day when I get up, I don't feel like just popping on my tennis shoes and going out for a walk. <laughs> I do not feel like that. <laughs> One of the biggest surprises when you get to a certain age and your testosterone drops is you just don't care. <laughs> you know what I mean? You don't have the energy. You know, I'm a very disciplined person naturally. But, I, you know, I've been saying for a long time, I've been saying, look, be disciplined. Like going to the gym, right? Be disciplined. Go, don't look at me on this part of it, okay? But... <laughs> But, but go to, you know, you've got to be disciplined to get to the gym because you don't want to go. Maybe when you start becoming an addict of exercise, then you do want to go. But until then, it's a work, right? It's a discipline. But then you get there and you feel so good. And that was my walks. If I made myself go in the morning, I was so happy. My life was so much better. I'm literally telling you something. I would be a completely different human being if it weren't for those walks. I, I'm a, you cannot believe what a different person I would be. You wouldn't recognize me. And so the point is I make myself go because I know that it's going to be so great that I'm going to be really happy that I did that. And that seems like a totally reasonable compromise to me, right? And I've been living in that space for a long time now. But two weeks ago when Kevin was preaching, the Lord spoke to me and he said, you're letting something creep into what you're doing with devos that is robbing, stealing the joy, the relationship. And as soon as he said it, it was true. There was this thing that was creeping in that was causing me to do it in a different spirit. And it was stealing from us. It was stealing from the joy I get. So here's my... That's me. I'm sure you've got something. Church, devotionals, readings, prayer. I'm sure you've got something where... A little bit of this sort of religion works, got to, is kicking in. Now, here's the key, though. See, you can't say, well, I'm not going to do it by works anymore, and so I'll just go if I want to, because I don't want to stop doing devos. If I, have to, if I have to poke myself in the finger to make myself go, I'm going to poke myself in the finger to make myself go. So the key is, is how do you get to a place to where you really want to do it? but you're not letting it seep into this religious discipline place. See what I'm saying? I'm not talking, discipline's a good thing, right? Bible talks about it as a good thing. So understand what I'm saying. What I'm talking about is a works mentality that starts to steal from the joy that you should be experiencing in that moment. That's what I'm talking about. So there's the question for us today. Oh, I missed this, sorry. Is your walk filled with obligation? Is your life overall filled with drudgery? Have tos. Is your life filled with things not going as you hoped? Instead of there being a miraculous walk, things aren't really working out like you'd hoped. In your heart, is it common or rare to thank and praise God? I understand that I'm to live in faith, but not works. But what does that mean in practical terms? You see it? I can talk about faith versus works until I'm blue in the face, but I'm not quite sure how to make a decision where I know that I have to make myself go for my walk or I won't go for my walk. What does a life of faith not works actually look like? And because I messed it up, I'm going to repeat these now. Now we can live, how can we live in a genuine freedom full of joy and still be doing the things of God in ever more fullness? I'm going to tease this a little bit and I'm going to tell you, as I've prayed about the things that God showed me, I'm actually going on more walks than I was. How can we enter into everything that God has for us with a cheerful, I can't wait heart? How can we forever get rid of any sense of obligation, work, weighing us down, wearing us down? In other words, faith not works, relationship not religion. If that's important to you, and I think it, it ought to be because I'm telling you right now, this is the central issue of the whole of the Bible. Right here. You're going to see that in two seconds. 
But with that done, Becca Weber, oh, this is wonderful. You, you are sunshine. You are such light. Even when you smile right now, it just makes me happy. So would you pray for the sermon? Would you lift up another church? God, we just thank you that you desire a relationship with us. God, that you want to know us. You want us to know you. God, and I just pray that the word that you're giving today, God, whether it's a pull us towards you, a push us towards you, God, that, that intimacy of just leaning into you and wanting to know you more. God, we need your Holy Spirit to heal us and to draw us into um, just a new level of relationship with you. And so I just ask that you would be working in our hearts um, and that you would be um, stirring up questions within us just to draw you to you. And I just pray, God, for, for the body of Christ, God, but specifically in worship, because worship is what leads the battle, God. I just pray for the worshipers in the body of Christ, God, that you would continue to build them up, God, Amen. that you would... Um, encourage them, God, that they would um, rise up all across the world, God, and lead us um, into your presence. Amen. Jesus' name. Beautiful prayer. Thank you. Beautiful prayer, beautiful person. Here's the scripture that Kevin did actually about six weeks ago when he did this sermon on this Isaac passage. We're just going to read it. We want to make sure we get these verses in our hearts and minds. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Take your son, he said, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. By the way, just a really brief little aside. Before he'd been called Abram, but then he's in the intervening period here, there's a point in time where he said, you're now Abraham, father of many nations. And that's children of faith that we are and so on. Okay, now, so Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to the place that God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship and then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand, he took the fire and the sacrificial knife and the two of them walked on together. And then Isaac, being no fool, asked, my father... And he said, here I am. And he says, the fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb <laughs> for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. God himself. Now understand, when Abraham said that, who's the son? The promised son that God had provided. So there's a moment in here. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. When they arrived at the place that God had told them about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he replied, here I am. And then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. That thing, of course, that God did, right? So you're catching this, right? God didn't spare his own son. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named that place the Lord will provide. That was the name that Kevin did. So today it is, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Now, I just told you, that this faith versus work is the central issue of the whole of Scripture. Scripture is about God bringing us back to himself. He made us to be with us. He gave us free will. We chose to go away. Now God is reconciling us to himself in a way that he can be with us for eternity. That's the story of the Bible. But the central issue in that story is how are you going to get back to him? And the thing that we've seen now several times in the last few weeks is you cannot get back to him. God gives you all kinds of different ways to try and even helps us out in all kinds of ways and we never get back to him. So God does what we cannot in Christ, right? But now watch this. Even though 
even though we should understand the message of the free gift of Jesus Christ, we still struggle with works. And I'm going to show you how this plays out. But first, let me do something. What chapter are we in in Genesis right now? Chapter 22. What chapter did we start this thing in? Chapter 15. That is right at the very beginning of the Bible. If you're a novelist, here's how you write a novel. You start off with a beginning of the story that is a, that's setting up some themes. And then you work out the themes and they come to a resolution which brings the reader an insight about life. That's what a novel is. Now, one of the proofs of the Bible is that God has written us a novel. Only it's not a novel, it's history. But over a period of 1,500 years, and the oral tradition goes back further, but over a period of 1,500 years, God wrote a book, the Bible, through 60-plus authors, and yet it's one novel. It's one story. At the very beginning, God sets up the problem. He made us to be with us, and we chose to be different. But there's a sub-issue in there. It's not even the B storyline. The A storyline is we keep trying to get back to him on our own. Even after he's given us a free gift. And the problem is it's perverting our relationship with God. The way we're trying to get back to him is perverting us. Now this debate, which has begun right at the beginning of the Bible, plays out in the New Testament in a way that I'll bet you right now, most of the people in this room, even though you heard me say it many times, we're going to walk through the debate and you're going to go, oh my gosh, I had no idea that was in the New Testament. Because there is an all-out brawl, a name-calling brawl that breaks out in the New Testament between James and Paul. Now the first person... The, the one that's important for us is the one that got the truth right, and that's Paul. And remember who Paul was. Paul is a Pharisee of Pharisees, meaning I was far ahead of all my fellow Jews in zeal for the tradition of my ancestors. What's that mean? The law. In the law, he says in Romans, I was blameless. So God took the person that was just like God took the person who knew what the problem was more than anybody else. Do you see it? Totally got what works is because that's what he was living every single day of his life. This is the way that he was living. This is the, he didn't even think of it as a horror show. It was just religion. And religion is weighty and bounded and <clears throat> it wasn't joy. Boy, I got so many stories. Wow. I was far ahead of my zeal. Now, what happened is, is that God saved him, remember? And remember what he said when he saved him? When he saved Paul, knocked him down the road to Damascus, he said, is it hard to kick against the goads? What's the goad mean? I'm trying to move you in a certain direction, and you're kicking against it. Paul, a religious person, God was trying to move him into relationship, and Paul was kicking against relationship and saying, religion, 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 law, law, law. See, even though God had started it in faith way, way back here, at the very beginning, he said, it's faith, not works. And I just, I proposed to you, I speculated that at this moment in time, I know a man in Christ, Paul's talking about himself, was caught up into the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. But I know that this man was caught up into paradise and he heard inexpressible words which a man is not allowed to speak. Now Paul already, I believe, by this point in time understood the issue between faith and works. But the issue is so dramatically more than what we understand that I don't think, I'm speculating, I think it was when Paul was looking at God that he all of a sudden went, oh my gosh, all these thoughts I've had about what a relationship or religion with you is are not just wrong, they're harmful. They hurt us. Was it there looking into God's face where Paul suddenly realized the 180 degrees difference between faith versus works? 
relationship versus religion. I want to propose to you that this is where it got ironed into him, where it got all the way to the ground. To the point, now watch this, to the point where even the other Christians that were alive in his time couldn't get it. Peter, in a way that we're going to look at in more detail, says this about Paul. And remember, one of the reasons he's saying this is because Paul had to rebuke him to his face. Do I wait? <laughs> you can answer it. Just say hi. No? Okay. Okay, Peter says, Paul speaks about all... Now listen to how he says it. Paul speaks about these things, faith versus work, in all his letters. <laughs> See what he's saying? Paul talks about this stuff all the time. This is what he's talking about all the time. In which there are some matters which are hard to understand. And he's saying, it's super hard to get. I'm telling you as Christians now, this is Peter, a Christian telling us as Christians the stuff that Paul is saying is hard to really get. You see it? The untaught and the unstable twist all of this stuff to their own destruction, own harm. And they're able to do as they do with the rest of the scripture. So here we go. Now, well, just one more thing. I want you to see this. I talked about Martin Luther right now. I want to show you. It wasn't just in the Bible that we had this problem. After Jesus Christ was risen again and Christianity was taking off, we lost faith versus works and we resolved it in favor of works. Still faith, but works and faith. And the Catholic Church for 1,500 years, three quarters of its existence to date, was on the side of faith and works, a mixture of faith and works. This is how hard it is to get rid of. Martin Luther, Martin King says, Martin Luther, excuse me, though, now listen, these are his words. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, he's saying Martin Luther is the guy who's just like Paul. He's the guy who was excelling amongst his peers because of how religious he was, how strongly he was going after it. And as I said last time, he'll say it in another place. He'll say, the more I beat myself, the further from God I realized I was. The more I tried to be close to him, the further it was, the more apparent it became how far away from him I was. So the more I tried to get close to him, the more I realized how far from him I actually am. And so he says it this way. This is his own words. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God. He's supposed to be saved, but I felt like I was a sinner. I could not believe or feel that God was placated by my repentance and my works, the things I was doing to be close to him. I did not love. Now listen, this is Martin Luther saying this. He got to a place where trying really hard to be right with God. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteousness, the righteous God, not just righteousness. I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. I was angry with God and I said, it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through eternally sin are also crushed by the law. <laughs> You're just piling it on, God. What's the point? The gospel, what's supposed to be the good news became to me the, the good news, Jesus Christ became, it was God threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. This is Martin Luther saying this. Do you think he got kinked? <laughs> Do you think this little thing that crept in, the little leaven crept in and leavened the whole lump? Remember, that's how Jesus talked about this stuff. You let a little bit in, it'll end up leavening the whole lump. But now watch this. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night. Here's what I want to say. Meditating day and night. Luther didn't just say, well, I'm just going to hope it works out. When he had a problem, he pressed in on it. He pressed in, he pressed in, he pressed in. Meditating day and night, I understood that the righteousness of God is a gift of God revealed by in the gospel. Jesus Christ, a free gift. I cannot earn what he did. I cannot merit what he did. Merciful God. See, you've been talking about a merciful God before, right? Vengeful, wrathful, angry, mad, horrible. But now it's merciful God justifies us by faith. I was altogether born again and entered into paradise through open gates that were formerly closed to me. I couldn't get in. I couldn't be enough. A totally, listen to this, 
<laughs> Please, God, help us get this point. A totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Do you see it? Faith versus works. He suddenly said, oh my gosh, it was exactly the opposite of what I thought. A whole other way of thinking about it came to my heart. Uh, a totally other faith in the entire scripture showed itself to me. The work of God, not our works, the work of God is what God does in us. The power of God, which makes us strong. The wisdom of God, which he makes us wise. The strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. I praised him using the sweetest word. With, listen, with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the word righteousness of God. You see it? Thus that place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. Josh, help me at the end of this service, okay? I just can't take it anymore. I'm going to start just taping it to my ear. Now watch. Here's James, okay? We're talking about this incredible freedom that Martin Luther found, that Paul found, and that changed the world. When Martin, Paul found it, and it changed the world. But the world didn't change as much as it needed to. It wasn't until Martin Luther, 1,500 years later, that we have the Reformation, a new thing. And even now, Works and all of this has seeped all the way into the Christian church and the Christian's lives. So here we go. Here's the way James says it. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And he says in a seemingly unsurmountable argument, show me your faith without works and I will show you faith from my works. Right? Now, I'm going to stop right there and I'm going to tell you. Here's how you can show people your faith without works. If you think that you can't, it turns out you can. And here's how you do it. Are you filled with godly joy? When people are filled with joy that's godly, it's different than the world does, and people say, what's that? More so than they do when you help people. More so you do when you're a nice person. More so than you do when you're, see? It's, it's more of a weapon. Why? Because people don't live like that. <laughs> people don't have a godly joy. Here's another one. How about this one? Do you live in a peace that passes understanding? No matter what's happening with you, you're at peace. That's something the world can't figure out. And I'm telling you, that's a lot more powerful witness than your works could ever be. But the, but the interesting thing is you can't get there on your own, can you? Well, I'm in jail and I've been beaten, but I'm just going to be peaceful. <laughs> Either are or you aren't. Out of your heart is coming the truth. Here's, how about this one? Is it clear you trust, your trust is in him and not in anything in this world? Jesus, when he walked on the face of the earth, he did things that were a challenge to anybody who wanted the things of the world because the way that he walked was just so different. You see it? And here's what people thought about it. Religious people hated him and people that were in trouble loved him. Whatever it is you're doing, it's better. I want that. I want that. So there is a way to show people your faith without your works. But let's keep going. James, foolish man, remember that, how he's talking. Foolish man, I want to tell you right there when he says that, he's not just talking to the group of people, he's talking to Paul. We'll see this in a second. Foolish man, are you willing to, he's not saying Paul's foolish directly, but he is saying foolish person who thinks the way Paul has taught you to think. Foolish man, are you willing to learn? Listen, are you willing to learn? <laughs> see? <laughs> and he's talking to Gentiles, by the way, a lot. Are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham, our father, justified by works when, keyword, he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Is that when he was counted righteous? Because it was 30 years before when he simply believed. But you see the argument he's making. He's conflating the two, and he's saying, yes, he believed, but his works did exactly what he says right here. They perfected that. See, now watch. You see that faith was active altogether with his works, and by works, faith was perfected, made real, brought out, and it was obvious now. You see it? By the way, let me say something. A Christian that is living by faith is going to have more works. It's just that they're not trying to do works. It's just that they're just doing what's natural. <laughs> Doesn't feel like works at all. I'm not saying it's not hard. I'm just saying, okay? 
flows out of the innermost being is rivers of living water. So the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and was crucified. See, the scripture was fulfilled. See, he believed him, but it wasn't anything until he did the work. So it's faith and works. And this is what the Catholic Church picks up on. And this is what doctrine becomes for 1,500 years before Martin Luther tries to do it like Paul did and realizes this isn't right. See it? So now let's go back to Paul talking to James. You'll see this. He literally mentions James in all this. Oh, foolish Galatians. What does that sound like? Foolish man. You see what they're doing? <laughs> okay. This is a fight in Scripture which God wanted us to see. Why? Because it's still a problem today and he wants us to see the fight so that we come down on the right side. Foolish Galatians, who cast an evil spell over you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you have seen a picture of his death on the cross. What's he mean by that? Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Did you tithe and did you, you know, not cheat? And did you not steal? And did you keep God first? Did you do the law and then... The Spirit came because you did the law. Is that how it worked? Or were you really stuck in the mud, hopeless, cried out, and God simply gave you the Holy Spirit? Is that how it worked? Because what he's saying is, did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be after starting your new lives in the Spirit? Why are you now trying to become perfect? Remember who used that word just a second ago? Are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it was not in vain, was it? I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not. It's because you believe the message you heard about Christ in the same way Abraham believed God. And God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He's locating it in chapter 15, not chapter 22. The real children of Abraham then are those who put their faith in God, not works. What's more, the scriptures look forward to this time when God would make the Gentiles, us, right in his sight because they believe, because they receive the free gift. God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, all nations will be blessed by you. And that's where he gets the name Abraham, father of many nations. So all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. Now watch. Remember Peter who said, Paul says stuff that's true and it's hard to understand and I got it wrong too. He didn't say I got it wrong too, but here he did get it wrong. When Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. Afterwards, when some friends of... By the way, this argument right here, Martin Luther looked at and said, James does not belong in the Bible because of this. Now, if your standard is everything that's written has to be absolutely true, and it all is true, but if your standard is it had to be completely accurate, then James doesn't belong in the Bible. James clearly, though, however, does belong in the Bible because God wanted to highlight this issue. And there's other things that James said that were quite dead on with the Holy Spirit. This one thing, something had crept in, and God said, that's a big thing, and I want to highlight it. And I want that in the Scriptures. I want people to read this debate. I want them to see what the issue is. I like James. I don't, you know, I think he got this one thing wrong. But, you know... I get things wrong. We all get things wrong. God uses it. Friends of James came. Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy. Even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, and remember the sheet came down. I've never eaten anything unclean. And God says, don't call unclean what I'm now calling clean. If you, by, since your birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and all, and 
the Jewish laws, and are living like a Gentile. Why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow Jewish traditions? You're putting it on them. The truth is the church in Jerusalem lasts a few more years and dies out completely. And the religion of Paul is what goes. The evangelism of Paul is what starts it up in Rome and all those led to Rome and Christianity spreads out to the whole world. And you would think it'd be Pauline, but we've seen that no, it slips back into Jamesian. Do you see it? So now, just lest you think that this was some sort of highfalutin disagreement, you need to understand something. This is incredibly serious to the point that Paul does probably the thing that's the most questionable thing Paul ever did. Because in the letter to Galatians, what he said was, is, I wish those who are disturbing you might also get themselves castrated. He's saying, they want you to get circumcised. I wish they'd go all the way and just cut themselves off. Does that sound nice? No, but understand why he said it. From now on, let no one cause me trouble on this thing because I bear in my body the scars of the cause of Jesus. Here's what he's saying. It wasn't the people from James that beat him and scourged him, but they were on the side of those who did. The Jews would come to the towns where Paul was preaching a new freedom, a new truth, a thing that Jesus Christ had revealed. 180 degrees different than the law. And two or three times, I think it was two times, they left him, they beat him so hard he was left as for dead. He was scourged several different times. He was beaten, he was persecuted, he was, I mean, these people followed Paul around and they were absolutely, he's saying, that scar, those scars on my back, that comes from people that believe this stuff I'm talking to you about. These are people that think they know the Lord and they're beating me. So this isn't just some little bitty academic argument. This is life and Paul was willing to pay with the whole of his life for it. The truth is, is we need to be in a place where we're living up to these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You cannot work that up on yourself. This is something God has to do in you. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, I want to do something right now. In front of you is a piece of paper. Is it in front of you or is it being passed out? Adam? They're in front of you? Okay, so reach in front of you and pick out that piece of paper. Everybody needs their own. This is a private exercise. Please, please do not look at your neighbor's answers on this. Okay? And if you need a piece of paper, raise your hand. And if you need a pen, there should be one in a, in a table next to you. Okay? So go ahead and give them, and, and do we have enough pens? And I see people getting up and getting them from other empty chairs. There are pens around. Everybody needs a pen and a piece of paper. Okay? There's one right behind you if you want to grab one. Now again, we're going to do questions not unlike we did at the very beginning, but this time... I want, you to, I want you to circle a number. I want you to see something. And again, this is private. But have your initial reaction and then what the Holy Spirit reveals to you and what you think about it as you think about it and circle the right number, okay? Private, but here we go. Don't do them just all at once. We're doing them one at a time. Is your life overflowing with love? Not really or abundantly or what's in between? What is it? Take a minute, write it down. Next one. Are you typically overflowing with joy? Are you? Yes, absolutely, or not so much. Would you say that you live mostly in peace? Are you so happy with your life that you find it easy to be patient? See, you're just doing pretty good in your life, and so you're not on edge all the time. You're not ready to be triggered and just break. Are you so happy with your life that you find it easy to be kind? My life is so good that I, I can just be kind to other people. Is the goodness in your life so rich that it just naturally spills over to goodness towards others?
in your heart, has God been so faithful to you that it makes it easy to be faithful yourself to others and to him? Is your life so overflowing with goodness that it's easy to be gentle? Again, you're not just on the edge all the time. Are you so happy that you find it easy to be self-controlled? Or do you have to self-medicate, do whatever you got to do in order to reduce the stress in your life? Do you see it? No, I can be self-controlled because things are good. I don't need that other stuff. You see it? And here's what I want you to do. Are you mostly ones and twos? Or fours and fives? What are you? Now, don't tell anybody. But I wanted you to see something. If you're fours and fives, then obviously God has got a hold of your life and something's happening that is rich, real, making a difference. If you're ones and twos, something else has got a hold of your life. Something else is doing something and influencing you. Do you see that? And there's a moment here. Here's what I want you to be. I'm going to read this. now. I'm going to go ahead and read it to you. Here's Paul who learned this stuff, how to be content. He gets severely beaten, remember that, and then thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape. If they escaped, they were, they were going to be killed. And if they escaped, then that jailer would have to pay their penalty. He'd be killed. So the jailer put them in the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, praying and freaking out, crying out, saying we're innocent. No, they were singing. Singing hymns to God. The other, person, the other prisoners are listening going, I don't feel like singing, but boy, whatever they're doing is better than what I'm doing, which is freaking out. Suddenly there was a massive earthquake and the prison was shaken to its foundation. All the doors immediately flew open and the chains of every prisoner fell off. Now right here, you have to remember that there's multiple times that Christians are in prison and something happens and God releases them, earthquakes included. But here's what happens in this case. And why did they stick around? Why didn't they walk out right now? They'd just been beaten and they knew that they were about to be killed. Why didn't, once God opened it, why didn't they just walk out? Do you have to really have to ask God? Well, apparently you do. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners escaped. Of course they would. He drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted to him, stop, don't kill yourself. We're all here. Huh? The jailer called for the lights, ran to the dungeon, fell down trembling before them. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Do you think maybe it was good that he obeyed the Holy Spirit and not his desire to run away? Do you think maybe it was good he was led by the Spirit to stay there? Because what happens is they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, you'll be saved along with everyone in your household. They shared the word of the Lord with him and all in his household. And even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. I got to get to the place to where if I'm in jail and I've been beaten and the prison doors open, I actually ask the Lord whether or not I should take off. Right? This is, this is where we're getting to. How do you live a life that is genuinely not works, but faith? That is genuinely not religion, but rather relationship. Asking the Lord what to do at all moments seems like a pretty good idea. These are those questions that we asked just a second ago on your thing. Did anybody catch what this list comes from? Anybody? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit, right? I don't know what's going on with me. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against this, there's no law. The law can't do this. The law is made irrelevant when you're living in this. See it? Here's the key. You have to be led by the Spirit. Now, I'm just going to take one more second 
Okay, we're just really close to the end, but I need you to really, you remember I told you earlier about my devotionals? Well, here's what I did. I was in the back, and when Kevin did that, and the Lord started speaking to me about my devotionals, and that I'd let something creep in, I knew immediately what he was talking about. The older I get, the harder it is to go out first thing in the morning. It's getting to be kind of a thing, and I was doing it anyway, and it was wearing on me, and it was stealing some joy. And so what the Lord did is, this is my to-do list. I wrote this the day, this is two weeks ago when Kevin spoke, and I've blacked out other things, but this is, the to, this is my task list. And you see, for prayer, and then you see it says, Devos, how to make more joyful relationship and less works. That's what I wrote. How to do my devos in a way where it's just about the friendship that I've always had with you. Because I like being with my friends. I like that. See? And then I did something else. I actually went into my thing. Now, this is after I prayed about it. And I felt like the Lord said, quit putting your devotionals first thing in the day. Now, I can do this. People that have a job, you can't do this. You can't say, hey, I'm going to take an hour off in the middle of my work day, and I'm going to go off and take my devotional, right? But here's what I want to tell you. The Lord will work it out in your circumstances. The Holy Spirit will lead you what works in your circumstances. But understand, for me, I do get to control my day on these things. And so one of the things I did, I was doing it first thing, but I want you to see that's a block schedule. I'm a very organized person. It's going to be important in one second. I go, I really do live by that, but I never let that control me. I always let the Holy Spirit lead me on what I'm supposed to do. And that's an average full week. Sometimes it's much fuller, sometimes it's less. But you see Devo's right there? I moved them to 11 o'clock. And I'm not, I can tell you, 11 o'clock rings and I don't walk out the door and do my Devo. What I did was I moved it to a later time in the day. Now watch why. The thing that God did with me a few months ago was, as he said, one of the problems you're having in your life, Curtis, is that the first thing when you wake up, the first thing you do is you go out and you start doing emails. And I don't know about you, but that causes me stress. And so when I wake up, I pattern myself, I taught myself to wake up and be freaked out. That I was going to, as soon as I wake up, bam, my mind is going. What do I got to do? What do I got to take care of? Who do I got to do? How do I handle this? What do I do? See what I mean? And God started saying to me, as you saw on my schedule, God started telling me, don't work. You see that in capital letters? See, this is, that block schedule reflects the Holy Spirit leading me. You can do this with your day in an organized fashion. This is me saying, don't work until eight o'clock. Just don't do it. Read the paper, watch TV, do whatever you want to do, but just don't work until eight o'clock. That's reasonable, particularly since I work late almost every day, Right? So he said, don't work till 8 o'clock. And then I moved it down to 11 just to get it out of that first thing so that I wasn't living in a shame for not having gone on my walk first thing. You got to understand something. In the old days, still to today, I wake up at 5 o'clock, I'm up. So it's just how much before 5 o'clock I'm going to be up. So when I got to 8 o'clock in the old days, I was already halfway through a work day for most people. Well, I'm changing that because it was killing me. And I got to tell you, because I'm changing that, I'm getting a heart back for the thing that God has called me to, which is to do what I'm doing right now. It's making a difference. And I got to tell you, I put it down there and I said, Devos, keep relational friend. I put it right there so that every time I went on a Devo, I went, I thought about this is relational and this is friend. Do it as the Holy Spirit leads me. And I'm telling you, I'm doing more walks and they're more fun. The key is to be led by the Spirit. Proverbs tells us we make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. One little real quick thing. I think a lot of times when you talk to somebody who's very organized about being led by the Spirit, what they think of immediately is that person that is undependable. They're led by the Spirit, so they may show up, they may not. They may cancel, they may do this, they may do that. I just can't count on them. Because they're just doing whatever they want, whenever they want it. This is not how the Holy Spirit is. Do you realize that? The Holy Spirit does things, as the scripture says in chapter 14, the chapter in all the Bible that talks about living in a practical way in the Holy Spirit more than any other single chapter in the whole Bible. Paul essentially ends, not quite ends, but, but his point about the Holy Spirit to a bunch of people who have become not right in it 
Was that, was that a euphemism? Did you get the euphemism? I've become kooky. Not dependable. In the chapter, it's more about the Spirit than any other. Everything must be done decently and in order. He's saying the Holy Spirit is a gentleman and he does things in a way that works with your job, that works with your friend, that works with your responsibilities, that works with the things you have to do. He does things in a way that works with your life. He knows what your life is. He knows every single aspect of your life, every intimate detail of your life. And if you will just let him run it, make your schedule, but let you make the plan. Got it. But let him direct the steps. And when you do that, something extraordinary happens. Now watch this. This is the last thing. In our passage, it said, God will provide the lamb. I want you to think about something. What did that mean to somebody before Jesus was here? He'd provide for the sacrifice. That's all it meant, right? What does it mean now that Jesus is here? God provided the perfect lamb. Jesus. So what I'm saying is, is Jesus was found in Genesis in a way that people didn't even know he was there. Uh, Abraham looked up and there was a ram caught by the thickets. Now watch this. Jesus in Genesis, and I could do this, I would have, a, I, I think it's about 50 different times in Genesis that you can see pretty clear evidence of Jesus in Genesis. The first one, I'm only going to do the most obvious ones. I'm only going to do a few. Let there be light. And later on, John explains to us, everything that was made was made through Jesus. And that word, let there be light, that was the hidden Jesus. That's what we learned from John, right? Now watch this one. He will strike your head. He will, this is verse, chapter 3 now. He will strike your head, you'll strike his heel. What does that mean before Jesus? It doesn't mean anything, does it? <laughs> Nobody can understand it until Jesus, and then it's obvious. Yeah, you put him on the cross, but he crushed you. See it? Melchizedek, he has no beginning nor end of days. Hebrews tells us. That's a quote from Hebrews. He has no beginning or end of days, and Jesus is a priest like this, the Alpha and Omega who was there before and who's there till the end. It might, Melchizedek might have even been Jesus. I don't think so. I think it was an actual priest, but he was operating in a, in a thing that, why did Abraham, here's the key, maybe you don't know the story, Abraham went out and saved Lot and got a bunch of treasure and then he met this priest Melchizedek and he gave him a tenth. Why? He was supposed to do so and he was giving it unto Christ because Melchizedek clearly becomes in the New Testament, it's said he becomes Jesus that is that person. Not Melchizedek per se, but you get the deal, the spirit of it. Here's another one. The covenant that we talked about last week. He's either the smoking pot or the flaming torch. Jesus is one of the two, three of the three personhoods that's walking through the covenant. We're only to chapter 15. We've already got four clear evidences of Jesus. Chapter 18, Abraham and Sarah's visitors, they prophesy a miraculous son. Does that sound like something you might have heard of at some other time? A son born in a way that's pretty unusual? How about this one? Blessings on Judah. This is when Jacob, at the end of the book, end of Genesis, is doing a blessing. And he says to the sons of to Judah, he says, the scepter will not depart. What does that mean? Because, you know, if you're a Game of Thrones fan, which I am not, but if you're a Game of Thrones fan, you know, the king changes all the time, right? And bloodlines, who knows? You don't get one forever. It's always changing. But the scepter is not going to depart from Judah. How can that be? Jesus Christ, beginning and the end. That's how the scepter doesn't depart. It only makes sense when Jesus comes along. Before this, it doesn't. Last one, Joseph. By the way, who's Joseph? Here's a nice little one. Joseph is the rejected son. Does that bring to mind anybody else? Jesus is the rejected son. And what he says is what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And I think Justine's got a great sermon for us on this. I don't know if that's what's going to be, but we've talked a little bit, so... So Joseph, the rejected son, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. What you meant for evil, putting Jesus on the cross, God meant for good. So here's my point. Jesus is all over the Genesis, all over Genesis. We just don't know it. And just like we said last week, he's all over our lives. And we just don't know it. 
So let me propose to you a reason why you absolutely have to follow the Holy Spirit. The reason we have to be led by the Spirit and not by our agenda, works, or religion is because God is always doing things we don't and can't see. So the Spirit alone can get us where we need to be, when we need to be there, in the exact right heart and spirit. You could even, being led by the Spirit, end up there but be begrudgingly there and something happened and because you're not in the right heart, you're not going to be the instrument that God wanted you to be in that moment. Do you see it? The only way to get where you have to be, when you have to be there, in the exact right spirit, is if the Holy Spirit has been leading you. And then, throughout every day, you're going to be exactly where you're supposed to be, when you're supposed to be there, in the exact right heart to be and to see. You see it? Isn't this cool? When we are in the Lord, led by the Spirit, our lives were filled with so much, with some, so much revelation, miracles, things happening around us, which only He can do. That we are regularly in awe. And what does being regularly in awe lead to? Joy, <laughs> thanksgiving, praise. You see, you, we want a formula. This is works and this is religion. Or this is relationship, this is religion, this is works, this is faith. Here's what God is actually doing. He's giving us better than a formula. He's giving us an intimate, personal relationship with the Holy Spirit who is leading us on a journey that if we will but follow, we will end up exactly where he wants us to be when we're supposed to be there. Totally equipped and ready for whatever God wants to do. So here's the thing to do with all of this. Pick one thing in your relationship that has become to some degree, some, has become some degree of obligation, have to, and so becoming something you don't like. Just think about it. Is it coming to church? Is it reading your Bible? Is it saying, is it praying and talking with him? What is it? I want you to think about this right now. And on that little piece of paper you've got, I want you to write it down and then tear it off and take it with you. Or if you've got your phone with you, take it out and write it down. What's the thing in your life where works has been creeping in? Religion's been creeping in. And it's trying to steal from you. Write it down. Do something about it. You see it? What is it? And then pray about it. How am I supposed to change this, Lord? Don't come up with a plan right now. Take that slip of paper or that reminder on your phone and go ask the Lord, what do you want me to do with this? Start being led by the Lord right here. Let him lead you about what to do about this thing that's become kinked. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, come, touch, heal, deliver, Oh, Jesus, this thing about faith and works is so huge. It's so important. We don't know. And we get this works mentality wrapped around us, and it wraps around the axle and trips us up. So in Jesus' holy and precious name, please, God, in a way that only you can, set us free. set us to freedom in a way that brings about your life in a way that brings about your joy thank you Jesus in front of you are two cups in the lower cup is this bread and every week we look in that cup and we realize that the way I've been living my life, the works that I've let creep in, the religion that I've let creep in is stealing and killing and destroying. Like it did with Martin Luther, it's doing with me. And so in Jesus' holy and precious name, I lift this cup now. And I, I just, one of my dear friends brought this to me. When we take that bread, look at the cross. Because on that cross... We were healed, healed. So in Jesus' name, put your finger in there and break it.
and then look through it and know that in Jesus you are healed. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, I take this bread for life, for healing. Take it together. And now, Lord, in your most spectacular name, you have a life for us that is beautiful. In Jesus' holy and precious name, let that be the life that we lead. It's a life we already have, but we seal it and say yes to it as we said at the beginning during the worship. We want to seal this by saying, make this be my life. Seal it in you. Take this cup together, would you? Thank you, Jesus. Ushers, thank you for coming forward.